0: Okay, well, the theme of our conference is human action and virtue. That covers a vast, vast number of topics in St. Thomas. So really, we're talking about the Prima Secundae and the Secundae Secundae. Um, what I'm going to do this morning is give you a lead-in to uh, lay a kind of common ground for all of us, uh, and so that those who are not familiar with, deeply familiar with those texts in Aquinas can be caught up. Hopefully enough to be able to follow the talks for the rest of the weekend, and those of you who are familiar with it can get a review, and then we can have some Q and A time. Okay. All right. So let's start out (coughs) with uh, the basic statement that we're going to be discussing: free agency today. Okay. Now, there's lots of ways we could go with this. Uh, Do human beings have? Are we free agents? Do we have free will? There's the whole question of determinism uh, versus free will. We'll set that aside and we'll take it as granted that the onset question has been answered. Human beings do in fact have free will. We'll take that for granted. I know that's a major uh, presupposition, but you have to have some kind of presuppositions. Um, so we'll, we'll start with that. Now let's then begin with, uh, how do we experience our free agency? This is important to start here, I think, in the consideration of things, because the way in which we experience our free agency, our lived experience of it, so to speak, sets us up, in some way, for an alternative way of thinking about free agency that's rather different from Thomas Aquinas. So let's start with just an ordinary daily experience. We're all familiar with the experience of having options before us. You go into a restaurant, there's a menu, Here's the options. What do you want? Do you want steak or do you want chicken? Do, or do you want fish? Those are the options. And then we opt for one or the other. Okay? Or you you uh in order to get a new car, right? You go to a car lot, here's a whole bunch of different models and makes. And what do you want? And we opt for one or the other. Okay? That's the way that we typically think about free agency, or that's the way we should, I say, we live it day in and day out, where we have the experience of being confronted with options and opting for one thing or another. Now, there's a way of thinking about free agency where the story basically ends there. You could just say free agency is the ability to opt between contrary courses of action that are set before us. And if you think about free will that way or free agency that way, you get a very truncated picture, a very truncated picture. It (coughs) sort of makes human existence or human free agency out to be a series of uh, disparate and unrelated uh, events that take place just one after another. Well, we went to the restaurant in the evening, I opted for a steak, and then I went to the car lot after that, and I opted uh, to get a new car. And then... Uh, We drove home in the old car, and we opted for this radio station rather than that. And you see how life just gets made out to be a series of unrelated kind of acts, where you opt between this, that, and the next thing, okay, one after another, and it makes no kind of overall sense. That is how a lot of people experience their free agency. Okay, we live in a situation, in a cultural situation, where the bigger picture of what it means to be human has gone into eclipse. We're subjected to profound dissociation of various kinds at multiple levels psychologically, and so what we often have is a kind of stream of consciousness and sort of a sense of following one impulse after another, um, and that's how we think of free agency, and that's how for a lot of people that's like the ultimate picture, uh, the ultimate horizon. Well, we want to try to get uh, beyond that and go deeper and. Um, start to think about free agency in a deeper way, but there's a group of people I do want to talk about quickly uh, in the ancient world who, that's more or less where the picture ended. They were called the sophists. The sophists had a certain anthropology. And a good way to understand Aquinas is by contrast with the sophists. Sophist anthropology is actually pretty simple. And you'll, you'll notice it kind of coincides with contemporary Um, psychology in a lot of ways or the contemporary understanding of ourselves. For the sophists, human beings have lower appetites or impulses and we have the power to fulfill them. More or less. More or less power. I mean, part of the game is to get more power so that you can fulfill your appetites more. Okay, that's the sophist ethic, really. But that's basically what a human being is for a sophist. We are appetites, lower appetites, and we have the ability to fulfill those appetites through techne, mal- manipulation, political manipulation, or other, whatever means are at your disposal, but that's basically what a human being is. Appetites and the ability to fulfill them, okay? And the game is to aggrandize your a power or your ability to fulfill them um, so that your appetites can be fulfilled. I mean, what, what more could there be? What, what better could there be? Um, that's sophist anthropology, and it will strike you as uh, familiar, because it seems to be the anthropology of advertisers, undergraduates, and other such people. <laughs> that, okay? um, yeah, that's where it's at. Okay? The way to understand the, the great philosophical tradition, the perennial philosophical tradition about free agency, uh, comprising a very, very big tent of Plato, Augustine, Aquinas... Poethius, all these great figures, the perennial philosophical tradition is is well understood by contrast with sophist anthropology. And it really, maybe even it developed out of the attempt to <coughs> defeat it and to push back its influence in society. Okay, its influence is at work in society again today. Um, well we'll leave that aside. What's the we could say the general picture of the alternative to the sophist anthropology? Classic Philosophical anthropology or the perennial philosophy goes something like this Human beings have a higher appetite. We do have lower appetites, and lower appetites are an important part of our life, but we also have a higher appetite. And we have the ability to perceive the order of reality. We have the ability to perceive the order of reality, and that ability is called reason. The Greeks understood reason precisely in this way. It's the ability to understand the order of reality as such. St. Thomas follows that exactly in his prologue on the commentary on the Nicomachean Ethics. Reason is the ability to perceive order. That's what it is. It's its essence. And we also have the ability to live according to the order of reality perceived by reason. We have the ability to live according to the order of reality perceived by reason. So, life is not about simply the fulfillment of lower appetites, but it's about living in accord with the order of reality perceived by reason and integrating passions into that overall project, overall life project, we could say. So, what we're going to attempt to do this morning is spell out in detail this picture, this classical anthropology. So human beings have lower appetites, but we also have a higher appetite, and we have reason, which is the ability to perceive the order of reality, and we can live according to the order of reality perceived. So we're not simply following appetites and trying to aggrandize our power to fulfill our appetites, okay? There's more to being human than that. So, what you start to see already is that the picture of what free agency is is very closely associated with what the, what the good life for a human being is. Okay. They're very closely associated with each other. Okay. Uh, we're going to spell some of this out because you'll, you'll notice that as we go and we start spelling this out, you say, wait a second, isn't this like ethics we're doing? Aren't we like we're talking about the end and the good and happiness? Aren't those, like, ethical considerations? I thought we were talking about free agency. <coughs> now, the way St. Thomas conceives of free agency is that we're essentially ethical actors, meaning we're embedded in an ethical story always already, and you can't get outside of it, okay? Hopefully, we'll see by the end why this, why the question, why be moral, doesn't make any sense for Aquinas, okay? All right. So let's begin this way. We're going to begin with a very broad metaphysical statement, okay? The broad metaphysical statement is this. Reality is a world of form and finality. Reality is a world of form and finality. We live in a world in which entities, the things of nature, have substantial forms and final ends they exist according to a nature, they exist with a nature, and they act for the sake of fulfilling their natures, realizing their ends, okay? This is something we observe in nature around us, generally speaking, okay? So you, you look at the way a tree grows, each tree has its own nature, and according to its nature, it seeks full optimal flourishing for a thing of that nature. It seeks an optimal state. You can see the same thing in animals. From the moment of conception, the organism is unfolding in a way that is tending towards optimal flourishing, the optimal state for each thing according to its kind. Okay? And likewise, there's there's multiple levels of analysis we could do that. You can do it at the level of individuals, you could potentially do it at the level of um, systems or ecosystems or something like that. Okay, social units, etc. cetera. L- slight complexities when we do that. But basically, we live in a world of form and finality. This is really the critical metaphysical principle that distinguishes uh, St. Thomas from, I think, virtually all modern philosophers and alternative accounts of, Free agency. Okay? They try to develop an account of free agency uh, such that we don't we don't live in a world of form and finality. Uh, we live in a kind of mechanistic mechanistic universe, a nominalistic mechanistic universe. And then the question comes up: do we have uh, free agency? That's the big question. And if we do, how does it how does it work? Okay? That's a much more difficult question to answer when you set it up that way. St. Thomas uh, sets everything up in terms of form and finality. We live in a world where things have forms and they have final ends. Okay? And we're going to try to understand our free agency as a phenomenon or a reality in that world, right? in the world of form and finality. Okay? So how does that work? We'll start out with a major principle. Okay? Here comes, the, I guess you could say, the major principle. All human action is for the sake of an end. All human action is for the sake of an end. And we can mean that in two senses. It's for the sake of a proximate end, but it's also for the sake of an ultimate end. And that's the really important principle. All human action is for the sake of an ultimate end. Okay. That ultimate end is Happiness. Okay, That end is happiness. Now, how do we know this principle? That all <coughs> human action is for the sake of an end. Uh, Aristotle is the first to articulate it in the Nicomachean Ethics, in the very first sentence of the Nicomachean Ethics. But uh, he gives arguments, and others have given arguments down through history. There's a number of different arguments we could give for this. There's an inductive form of reasoning. That leads us to the view that all humans act for the sake of an end. And the inductive form goes like this. Pick any person you want and begin asking that person why are you doing X? Uh, In order to do what? The person will say, well, I'm doing it for the sake of Y. Okay, why are you doing Y? I'm doing it for the sake of Z. Okay. If you continue that line of questioning, eventually you will come to a, uh, a place where the person just says, I don't know. Uh, I'm just, I just want to be happy. Okay. Aristotle realized you can inquire with anyone about this, and the person will ultimately ultimately be led through the questioning to a place where they say, I don't know. I just want to be happy. And if you ask why do you want to be happy, everyone will look at you and say, uh, you're crazy, why are you asking that question? So that's a kind of inductive argument that we can give. Uh, I've done this for many, many, many years with undergraduates, and it, it always works. Um, you just pick someone and you say, Why are you taking this class? Well, in order to fulfill a requirement. Okay, why are you f- want to fulfill the requirement in order to, to get a degree? And it goes on and on and on, and eventually the student is left dumbfounded and said, I just want to be happy. I say, Why? they say, I don't know, I just do. Okay, <laughs> that's human nature. You've run up against the, the ultimate in the analysis. So there's this inductive form of the argument okay, that we can do. There's a deductive form of the argument. Uh, there's actually multiple forms of, of a deductive form of the argument. But one of them, a simple one, would go like this. All agents act for the sake of an end. That follows from our first principle that we live in a world of form and finality. If you want to see those arguments, go to Summa Contra Gentiles. Book 3, the opening chapters lay out the arguments for all agents act for the sake of an end. That's a very broad principle. That's just not all human agents. That's all agents, period. That is, all entities acting in any way whatsoever act for the sake of an end. Okay? But human beings are agents. Therefore, we act for the sake of an end. Okay? So you could give the argument that way as well. That's a much uh, harder route to go deductively, to make a kind of deduction from metaphysical principles. Most people have a hard time following that. Um, but uh, nonetheless, you've got these two ways open to you. You can go inductive, or you can go deductive. But the the big principle we get to is that all human action is for the sake of an end, and the end is happiness. Okay? Now we're going to say a little bit more later about what happiness um, means in the thought of Saint Thomas Aquinas. Okay, it doesn't just mean having a good mood. Okay, as which is kind of the contemporary American sense. Um, uh, it means something much more significant than that. Okay. So, but we'll get to that later. For now, we'll leave it at the principle that all human beings act for the sake of an ultimate end, and that is happiness. Okay. Now we'll go a step further. If we are these agents who are acting for the sake of an end, if, we're living, everyone, if everyone lives for something, everyone's living for happiness, how do we do that? How do we live for the sake of happiness? In order to answer that question, we have to lay out a principle that goes something like this. Human beings are composed of matter and form, because all the things in nature are composed of matter and form. And our form, like the forms of other animals and plants, is comprised of various powers. The powers of the soul, they're typically called. Okay, but we're comprised of various of these powers. Okay, and the powers carry out various actions. Okay? The most obvious example of powers are the external senses that we have: the power to see, taste, smell, touch, and hear. And the various powers carry out the acts of seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, hearing. And those acts are specified, or we could say defined by their objects or what's given to them, okay? So the act of sight is specified by its proper object of color. Color, what is given to sight and sight alone to detect. Okay? Uh, sound is the object of hearing. Sound is what's given to hearing and hearing alone to detect. Okay? There's various other things we could say about that. Okay? It's what is given to the thing, what's given to the power for its response or its act, that's what makes it to be the kind of act it is, which makes it to be the kind of power it is, okay? That's why hearing is different from tasting, is because of the two objects, the two distinct objects that they act in response to, okay? Or suffer, uh, we could say, if they're passive powers. So we have a nature comprised of these powers. Now obviously, the powers of the external senses are not our only powers, they're just the ones that are kind of most obvious, and are easiest to use to illustrate the principles in play. We also have other powers. The lower appetites that I was talking about earlier, Aristotle and St. Thomas both acknowledge that human beings have lower appetites, and the appetites are powers that respond to sensible goods and sensible evils, difficult goods and difficult evils. Okay? So the various sensory responses that we have, the passional responses are in response to sensory stimuli, we could say. If you walk into a kitchen, you smell fresh baked uh, chocolate chip cookies, it strikes your senses, immediately there's a movement of desire, a kind of passional desire, we could call it a pleasure impulse, okay? Those would be, uh, and that'd be an example of a, of a movement or an act of the lower appetites, okay? They're a part of our human nature. Every human being has these lower appetites. They respond to various stimuli in various ways with the various passions. Okay? Love, desire, joy, etc. Okay. But they're not the highest appetite within us. Okay? They're they're lower. Appetite, by the way, I should I should maybe give a general definition um, just to make things kind of clear. We can understand appetite in this sense as Uh, A tendency okay a tendency towards uh, the good basically or an aversion away from it depending on how you understand it okay Mm -hmm. a tendency that's how we understand an appetite in this sense of the term everything in the world around us has appetite okay in a very 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 broad sense okay we'll even say this sometimes like about a tree They'll say the tree wants to grow this way or the tree wants to grow that way. And we'll ascribe wanting to it. That, that basically signifies the same kind of notion Aristotle had by saying everything around us has this appetite or tendency built into it, okay? It's not just a, um, uh, an anthropomorphic kind of projection onto the tree. It's actually show, shows that the term appetite has a kind of analogical... Stretchability that applies to many different things at many different levels of perfection. But wherever there's tendency towards, there's going to be appetite in some sense. Okay? All right, so we have these lower appetites that respond to various stimuli as they come in. Okay. But there are two special powers, in addition to our external senses and our uh, sensory appetites, there's two special powers that are distinctive of human beings. Only human beings have these powers, okay? I mean, as distinct from the rest of the things in in the physical order of things, okay? The angels have them too, but in their own kind of way. And those are the powers of intellect and will. Intellect and will. This is what's distinctive of human beings. Intellect and will. Uh, By the way, just to make things uh, clear that in St. Thomas, the term mind, men's refers to that portion of the soul, or that part of the soul, comprised of these two powers, intellect and will. Okay. Um, yeah, that's quite important. Because in a contemporary understanding of the term mind, mind extends to everything that's going on, like every state of every Uh, every power, right? Uh, What's going on in your senses, what's going on in your sensory appetites, what's going on in imagination, memory, those internal senses, that's all mind, too, in the contemporary sense. But not for St. Thomas. He's following a patristic usage, really, that wants to use the term mind to designate the highest and the best part of the soul within us, okay? Okay. It's patristic. It's in Aristotle as well. Nous signifies what's highest within us. Okay, but it signifies what's highest within us, not everything within us. Okay, as Descartes and the and the sort of the the the, um, the tradition of the philosophy of mind uses the term. Okay, but we've got these two higher powers, intellect and will. They are constitutive of of mind mind is the highest thing within us and it's it's here in the intellect and will that we have this we could call, say the seat of free choices or or human acts what is a human act a human act is an act proceeding from intellect and will okay that's why other animals can't can you know have any kind of free choices. They don't have acts proceeding from intellect and will. They have acts proceeding from other powers, lower powers. But they're not proceeding from intellect and will. Okay. Now let's let's spend some time with each of these powers uh, and, and consider them, because it sets us up for a bigger understanding of free agency. Intellect is the capacity to know the truth. Intellect is the capacity to know the truth. We could say that truth is the object of the intellect, or truth is what's given to the intellect for the intellect to uh, detect, understand, respond to. Okay? But included within the notion of... Well, let me, let me um, make a few qualifying remarks there. When I say that, intellect, that the object of the intellect is the truth, I mean the extended object of the intellect... There's many passages in Aquinas where he says the object of the intellect is the quiddities of sensible things. That's what we might call the proper object of the intellect. But Thomists are in the habit of speaking of the extended object, where they'll they'll happily say the intellect has truth for its object. Like truth, transcendental truth, like all the way, like whatever is true whatsoever... We we are hungry for it. it, It's suitable for the intellect. Okay, doesn't mean the intellect is apt, competent um, to know it or fathom it or understand it, but it somehow falls under the uh, interests of intellect. Okay, or the inclination of the intellect. Okay, we want to know all truth. Okay, all right. Now this includes, therefore, the truth about the good. What's good? There is a true answer to that question. What's good for human beings? There's a true answer to that question. What's bad for human beings? There's true answers to those questions. So insofar as those, we could say, moral questions or ethical questions about what's good or what's going to actually make us happy, insofar as those questions have true answers, they fall under the intellect. It's is very important. I, we want, I want to pause and, with, and let you sit with this for a minute. Because we live in an environment, especially in an academic environment, where it's almost axiomatic that intellect is not competent to know the truth about the good. Or there is no truth about the good. Either there is no truth about what is good, there's no fact of the matter about good and evil, right and wrong. Or if there is a fact of the matter about good and evil, right and wrong, human beings don't have access to those facts. It's beyond, like, the range of reason or something, okay? Uh, In in a world in which a kind of relativism, subjectivism, nihilism has set in, uh, we ourselves, even if we don't believe those positions in principle, need to stop for a moment and do some deprogramming. We need to be deprogrammed ourselves from the environment that tells us intellect has nothing to do with like the truth about the good or intellect can't know the truth about the good it's like there's the facts on one hand there's the values on the other we, we can know facts using our scientific methodologies and whatnot but values oh pff, nobody knows anything about that forget either there are none they're not objective or we don't know them or whatever so that just does not I mean we just can't that doesn't fit with Aquinas at all or, Aquinas would say, wait a second, no, intellect is a marvel for, among other reasons, its ability to know what's good, the truth about the good, and we're able to know that, okay, to know the truth about the good. There's a specific, um, you could say, maybe we should have a term just for the truth about the good, okay, and there is a kind of basis for that. In the tradition, uh, if you read Augustine's uh, on free choice of the will, he gives a marvelous definition of wisdom: that wisdom is the truth in which the highest good is discerned and acquired. So maybe, maybe we could use the term wisdom to specify precisely the ability to to know the truth about the good. Okay, then you'd say that for Aquinas, reason is the capacity for wisdom. Okay, something like that. Now, the difficulty there is that there's multiple senses of the term wisdom all over the place in in Aquinas and in the tradition. But I'm just kind of making a, a, a modest proposal, okay? If we want to designate specifically this ability to know the truth about the good. Okay, so intellect is this capacity to know the truth and the truth about the good. What is will? Will is an appetite, okay? Will is an appetite. I remember when I first heard this, it came as something of a surprise. Because I tended to think of will as like an inner executive, like an inner CEO who says, do this, don't do that. Or like, you know, opt it's that whole picture of opting. I opt for this, or opt for that. But in fact, will is an appetite. Okay? It's an appetite for the apprehended good. That's practically a definition of the will. Will is an appetite for the apprehended good. Let's note the word apprehended. No one wants or loves what he does not know. That's an old axiom or principle going way back. It's in Augustine. It is impossible to, to love what one does not know. I mean, suppose there were an island somewhere out in the middle of the Pacific with all kinds of exotic fruits or animals and whatnot, and you knew absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing. You knew about it in no respect. Well, if you had no idea about it at all, you could not want to go there and visit the place. So it's impossible to want what one does not know. So that's what we mean when we say, will is an appetite for the apprehended good. And we need to have some kind of intellectual apprehension of something as good in order to want it, okay? But let's pause also for, to, to note something else. When we define will this way, uh, another way we could talk about appetite is to use the word hunger. Will is a hunger for the apprehended good. That gives another characterization of it in slightly different language that helps to bring out some of the dynamics of the will. It's a hunger. Not a hunger like, you know, for food, but a hunger, but like that. It's a hunger for the higher goods, the goods as intellectually apprehended. Okay? And when we understand will this way, the primary act of the will is to love. The primary act of the will is to love. Love is first, uh, will is first of all, a capacity to love. That's also very different from a, maybe a um, more kind of inner executive understanding of will. Or a C, the inner CEO that organizes, directs, and executes. Now there is the, the capacity to execute, we'll get to that later. But that ability to execute presupposes something way more fundamental, which is that will is the ability to love, okay. Your your will and my will then is your interior responsiveness to, to goodness. It's your interior responsiveness to goodness, and it's the to goodness perceived or understood or apprehended by the intellect. That's what your will is and mine. That's a, that's a very vast, very broad uh, understanding of will. And with that vast and broad understanding of will, we can then account for the various ways in which we respond to goodness. We respond to goodness in many ways. Okay? We'll get to that later, but that's will, generally speaking, is that interior responsiveness to goodness. Okay? All right, now we're in a position to start setting up some principles, or laying out some principles, about relations between intellect and will. And here comes um, some, one classic kind of problem. So I'll, I'll make the, what we call the standard caveat, uh, and then I'll make, I guess you could say, the standard mistake, okay? The standard caveat is this. We should not reify the powers of intellect and will, because we're going to start talking about intellect doing this, will doing this intellect doing this, will doing this to the intellect, all that kind of stuff, and you start to get a kind of inner mechanistic picture, okay, or, or so it looks very often, and we always need to remember, it is the person who acts through the powers, it is the person who acts through the powers, sunt actions are of the supposit, that is of the, of the person who acts, and the person, it's really the person using the powers of intellect and will, okay, to act. That's what takes place in reality, okay? What we do is we distinguish between intellect and will and talk about their um, uh, interactions or, or dynamisms or however you want to describe it, their interactions with each other, precisely in order to get clarification on the mystery of the person Who's, who acts. That's the point. Okay, And we can better understand what's going on in ourselves, in our lives, and in the lives of other people by, by thinking through the powers and the actions and their interactions. Okay, But it's not like there's a person who's just carried along by his powers. Okay, the power, my, well, my intellect did this, and my will did this, and therefore... It just happened to me. That would be a major mistake um, if you ended up with that kind of picture. Okay? Now, all that being said, we're going to proceed to talk about the powers Okay, <laughs> and the way they interact with each other. So here's one of the important principles to lay out first. That the intellect moves the will with final causality. Intellect moves the will with final causality. That means the intellect presents something, a thing, a person, an action as a good, as attractive. Goodness is magnetic. Goodness is that which all desire. What that that means is Goodness is magnetic, it's attractive, it draws, it summons. It's also satisfying and fulfilling once obtained, but its first effect upon us, we could say, is to draw us, to summon us, to attract us, it's magnetic. So when the intellect perceives something as good, or when the person, using his intellect, perceives something as good, the very... Goodness perceived summons, it draws, it magnetizes, it, it attracts the person. And what it attracts in you is your will, that interior responsiveness to goodness. That interior responsiveness to goodness is engaged, is moved, is stirred. Okay? That's how the intellect moves the will. By final causality. Now, we've got to be very careful, and I'll leave it up to uh, others later in the, in the conference to maybe spell out some of these distinctions. Um, Father Michael Sherwin has had a number of things to say about this in his book, about how uh, the early Aquinas understands the intellect as moving the will with final causality, but through adjustments he makes over the course of time, he's, he clarifies that to point out that the intellect moves the will with Formal causality, meaning the intellect specifies what it is that the will, um, uh, wills, rather than makes it will it. See, because what you can end up with, and this is a great puzzle, is when you say that the intellect moves the will with final causality, we can tend to think of final causality as backwards causation or, be- or efficient causation in reverse. So you can make it sound like, well, the object of the intellect is really efficiently causing the will to be stirred into motion or desire or love for the good. So Aquinas adjusts his his view on this over time that really, in order to want something, whenever you want something, you want something. The something that you want is specified by the intellect. The something that you want is specified by the intellect. What is the manner in which it moves? Well, final causality, but final causality is not just efficient causality in reverse. What is it? That's one of the great questions. Okay, that's one of the great questions. The next principle is that the will moves the intellect with efficient causality. The will moves the intellect with efficient causality. So through your will, you can Move your intellect to think about this, or not think about that. I mean, have you ever told yourself, "Don't think about that"? Uh, that's the will of moving the intellect with efficient causality. Likewise, you can move yourself to think about something. You can also th- move through, through your will. You can also move your intellect to reconsider. So I thought I was going to go here, uh, but I made my, I made up my mind. But you know what? Maybe I didn't think about that very carefully, I should stop and think about it again. I should reconsider. So we can, we can through our will, move our intellect to close deliberation. We can move our intellect to reopen consideration or, or engage in reconsideration of the same thing. That can happen through the will as well. So we can, the will moves the intellect, okay, to consider, to not consider, to reconsider, to keep considering, to stop considering all those sorts of things, okay. Um, All right, so the will moves the intellect with efficient causality. Now here comes another principle that's important. There is no act of the will without a preceding act of the intellect. There's no act of the will without a preceding act of the intellect. Like I said earlier, you could not want to go to that exotic island in the Pacific unless there was a preceding act of the intellect specifying or presenting this exotic island to you. You wouldn't even want it. You couldn't want it. Okay. There's no act of the will without a preceding act of the intellect. Okay. That holds also for all those things I was talking about earlier, when the will moves the intellect. When the will moves the intellect uh, to consider, to not to consider, to reconsider. When the will does move the intellect, say to consider or stop thinking, it's because it seems good to the intellect to consider, not to consider, or to reconsider, okay? So we can think about our acts of willing. We can think about our acts of thinking and whether we want whether it's good to think or not to think about a particular thing at a particular time okay do you see what's starting to happen as we as we go here and develop and elaborate these principles what you're starting to get I hope is a picture of within you there's a, a, a dynamic interaction going on between your intellect and your will or between your thinking and your wanting and you can Uh, want certain things you're thinking about, you can want to think. You can want to not think. And you can think about wanting. I mean, have you ever said, I want this, but I don't want it. And why do I want it? You can think about what you want and why you want it. Okay? And hopefully at this point, the the principles, which can be kind of abstract, the way that we lay them out, start to hook up, I hope, with your actual uh, experience of your own agency. At this point in time, most people start to really connect with Thomas's picture. Wait a second. Yeah, I do have a kind of internal, what do you call it, dialogue? Um, That might be a bit metaphorical to describe it that way. An internal cycle or an internal process, a back and forth going on within me between what I think, what I want, what seems good, what's really good. And I think about... um, do I question certain things? And I ask myself, what do I want? So I think about my will, and I will to think or not to think. Okay? And all that is in response to the truth about the good, or what's perceived to be true about the good. Okay? And this takes place also, just to give some credit, uh, to the passions. Right, This takes place in a context of passion, Okay, which can... Um, uh, modify, let's say, the process in in various ways. Okay, so we're not just angels with an intellect and will alone. We also have uh, passions flowing from physiological sources, and that modifies the um, modifies the process of of thinking and deliberating about our choices. Okay. All right. The next principle is that there are acts of the intellect without a preceding act of the will. Okay? There are acts of the intellect without a preceding act of the will. Okay? So it's not like every thought you ever had is planned out or practically designed. There are spontaneous uh, acts of the intellect, okay? Thoughts. Okay? And you can, as so to speak, just think. Okay? You can do that. All right, that's an important thing. Now the next uh, next point. Now we can start to talk about free will. See, notice I haven't used the word free will yet. I've used the term intellect and will. Now we can spell out what a free will is. Free will is not a power. It's not a power preceding the intellect and will. What is a free will? Free will. Free will is a capacity proceeding from intellect and will operating together. Free will is a capacity proceeding from intellect and will operating together. Or operating jointly. Okay. We're going to study in detail in the next section how intellect and will interact with each other. Uh, and how free choices flow forth from that dynamic interaction. For now, we'll just state it, okay? Don't think of free will as a power, like like an additional power of the soul, and don't think of free will as preceding intellect and will. It's a capacity that flows from them both. So it's like, intellect will make its contribution, the will makes its contribution, and what flows from it, it, this is a free will or a free choice. Okay? Libra arbitrium. That's the way to think about it. Okay? So it's not a, this is not a power. It's a capacity <coughs> pro, proceeding from these powers. Okay? Now here comes a, another principle. The will cannot not will happy. The will cannot not will happiness. You and I, and every human being, per se, desires to be happy. St. Thomas will make like some startling quotes, startling points about this. He'll say, um, uh, to desire to be happy is not a matter of free choice. we will just say that up front. To desire to be happy is not a matter of free choice. Or, the will necessarily wills happiness. Now, as soon as we start to see those statements, people go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, free will is compromised. Um, no, he thinks that's actually setting you up for a free choice. In other words, by nature, we want to be happy. In other words, this will here, this longing, is always for happiness. Ultimate I mean the ultimate end. Okay, happiness, beatitude. We always already want that, so to speak, okay? Meaning, as we come of age, okay? We want that. We're made for it. What is free choice about? Free choice is not about the ultimate end. You want happiness. Okay? A person can be in error intellectually about what constitutes happiness, about which things go to make it up, but... That's an error of the intellect, okay? What is free choice about? Free choice is about means to the ultimate end. Free choice is about means to the ultimate end. Again, this was one of those statements that when I first read it many years ago, it was kind of startling because we're all accustomed to that very superficial understanding of free agency where here I am, in the restaurant or on the parking lot, and I'm opt, I've got these options, and I go opt for one thing or another, and there's no big-picture, long-term perspective. There's no higher interpretation of the act of opting. And what Aristotle and Aquinas and the wisdom of the ancients does is it lights up that experience with a higher perspective and lets us see that, wait a second, every act of opting that I do is actually a step. In a much larger story, and it's a step towards happiness or a step away from it and that came as a surprise right isn't that what philosophy and wisdom is supposed to do is point out things to you that you otherwise wouldn't notice that make great um, make a great difference in life. if you never have anyone point out point this out to you that every single act of opting, if we could put it that way, that may seem like just like a little finite kind of choice or one thing after another in a world of one thing, you know, various things after another, um, in fact, are steps on a journey towards or away from happiness. Okay. So it's, it's, really, it's really, I think, a, a profound insight to see all free choices regarding means, even if, you, even if the person really doesn't realize that. Another way to put it is that every free choice is a step towards or away from ultimate happiness. Okay. Uh, it doesn't often seem that way, and a lot, especially with trivial decisions and daily matters. Okay, uh, where you're not talking about things that are covered by major moral principles or something like that. But in fact, it's all matter of a choice that's for or away happy, from happiness. Okay. a couple of other points that we need just to set us up for next time and then, then we can take a break. Um, here's the la- one of the last ones. Everything less than God is good in some respects and bad in other respects. God alone is good in every respect. But everything else is good in some respects, bad in other respects. So, uh, a certain, well, to use an, artific- an artifact, a certain car might be good in some respects, it's sleek, it's cool, looks good, Uh, it's bad in other respects, it gets terrible mileage, okay? Certain foods are good in some respects, very tasty, bad in other respects, very fattening, very bad for you, etc. okay? So good in some respect, bad in others. We have to start thinking in those terms in order to be set up for the next session. And finally, last point, no finite good compels the will no finite good compels the will and we have our reason why the intellect is able to reconsider various aspects it's able to consider the bad aspects since everything less than God is good in some respects bad in some respects the will is not compelled by a particular any particular good or finite good because we're able to consider bad aspects okay even once you really, 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 really want something, you're able to reconsider and find some bad aspect to it. Okay? And if you focus on that, you won't be compelled to, to choose it. Okay? All right, those are all, that's all by way of background principles okay, to set us up. We live in a world of form and finality. Things act for the sake of an end. Here we are as agents with intellect and will. We have this inbuilt responsiveness to, the, to, the, to what is good and the truth about the good. And by acting according to or from out of that interior responsiveness to what is true about the good, we choose our way either towards or away from happiness, from true happiness. That's what free agency is for St. Thomas.